Zechariah chapter 5. This is the penultimate vision uh, that, that closes, the visions will close the first half of the book. And so uh, next week in chapter 6 we come to the last vision and we'll keep working our way through the remainder of Zechariah but takes on a different flavor after that. Uh, for tonight, chapter 5. Again, that's pretty close to the um, New Testament, if you're having trouble finding it. In the Pew Bible, it's page 794, uh, but it would be Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah, if you want to go back that way. Again, I, that is Zechariah, lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll... And he, that is the angel who was with him, said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket and he said this is wickedness and he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening then I lifted my eyes and saw behold two women coming forward the wind was in their wings they had wings like the wings of a stork and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven then I said to the angel who talked with me where are they taking the basket he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. The grass withers, the flower falls off. But this is the word of our Lord, and it stands uh, forever. Even the confusing portions of our, words, of our Lord's word stand forever. Um, last week, speaking with Carrie Ann, or two weeks ago, I guess, preparing for the ordination service, um, which... We could celebrate last week, and I asked, do you think I should continue my series in Zechariah or do a special sermon on, on officers and ordination? And she said, well, what, what are we talking about in Zechariah? And I opened up Zechariah 5 and read, reminded myself of, oh, the woman who is wickedness and the storks that are flying her away to the land of Shinar. I'm thinking I'm going to do something about officers and uh, save that for this week. Um, if you haven't read Zechariah 5 before, or at least you never really read it, then uh, you might be sitting there thinking, what in the world did we just hear about? What is going on? And you would be forgiven for that reaction, uh, because this is one of the more bizarre visions in Zechariah's um, uh, visions, one of the, the more bizarre imageries in those visions. Um, as I mentioned, this is the, the penultimate vision. Sometimes people count this as the sixth and the seventh vision, and, and they say there are eight overall. I talked a few weeks ago about really we should see there are seven, and that great um, message in Zechariah chapter 3 with the, the adversary and the advocate, that stands at the central, at the center portion of the book. 
or of these night visions. So that would mean that there are only seven if the fourth one is in the middle. And so this is really two parts to one vision. So maybe your, your um, Bible divides this by a vision of a flying scroll and the vision of a woman in the basket. But I hope you'll see by the end of, of our time together that really these go together. Um, and although at, at first reading it's very strange, and admittedly it's really strange at the second and third and fourth reading too, I want you to know it's not that complex. It's actually what, what we're meant to learn here isn't very complicated. And, and that isn't always true, but sometimes that's true when you think about biblical prophecy. It can be really weird, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily really hard to understand. So stick with me. Um, I have faith in you. We, we can make it to the end of this chapter, and I trust that by the end of it, you will understand the message that Zechariah is, is meant to relay to God's people, um, Israel of his day, but us too by, um, uh, by uh, the fact that we have now been engrafted into God's people. So the message is pretty straightforward. It's a, it's a warning and it's a wake-up call to the people who've returned from exile that just because they were back in the city, just because they're back in their homeland, uh, just because they were rebuilding the temple even, didn't mean that they couldn't find themselves yet again in the outskirts, in exile, on the receiving end of God's covenant curse. Heart change and moral reform are the things that God wants more than a rebuilt city. Heart change and moral reform are the things that God is after. And so the two images in this vision warn Israel that, one, sinners will be revealed among the nation. That's the first part of this vision. Sinners will be revealed. And two, if there is not sincere repentance, those sinners will be removed from the nation. That's the point of Zechariah chapter 5. God will reveal sinners, and if those sinners do not return to him with real hard change, he will remove those sinners. Sin will be revealed. Sinners will be removed from his presence. So we consider first the image of this flying scroll, verses 1 through 4, and what it teaches us about sin and sinners revealed. And this image isn't really that hard for us to picture ourselves in our mind's eye. We have all seen this before. That is, if you've ever been to the beach and you look up and you see those prop planes flying advertisements over the shore. That's kind of the idea here, this aerial advertising. A banner really is a better word than scroll. God has his own banner flying overhead in this vision. Uh, the dimensions are more akin to a banner than a scroll. It is twice as wide as it is long, about 10 yards by 5 yards. So you picture that wide banner being dragged behind a plane. Uh, but this banner is not advertising the best seafood in town or where you can rent jet skis or anything like that. Actually, it's announcing a curse. It's announcing a covenantal curse. And there are two sins that are highlighted in particular. Look with me at verse 3. This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side of the banner. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side of the banner. So two sins are highlighted. The first is stealing. 
And the second is blasphemy. Uh, Zechariah refers to it as swearing falsely. The sin in mind, though, is invoking God's name as a means of bolstering a false commitment or making a promise that one has no intention of keeping. And so in that sense, we have uh, stealing, which comes from the second table of the law, and we have blasphemy, which comes from the first table of the law. The third commandment, not the ninth, is really what's in mind here. And so we have represented on this flying banner the whole of God's law, uh, the requirements to, to love and to be truthful both to, to neighbor and to God himself. So the entire uh, Ten Commandments are represented on this scroll, and, and yet the scroll predicts a day when there will be those in Israel who are actually marked by greed and dishonesty, not by truth, not by um, uh, uh, respecting their neighbor's property, but by stealing it. Uh, those who want to defraud both their neighbor and God and use God and God's uh, curse against such sinners will go out and it will find them. So the question now is why does God present that reality, the reality that there will be Uh, A day when um, in Israel people are marked or defined by these sins in particular. Why does he present that reality with the image or this vision of of a flying banner? What is the point of this flying scroll curse? Well, I think two things at least could be said. For one, it's in the heavens which tells us it originates from God. That's part of the reason that. This banner is flying overhead. It comes from God. This is not an arbitrary man-made law. This is the moral law which is written upon the hearts of every single image bearer of God. Everybody in this room has uh, these two laws and the other eight written upon your hearts because you're made in the image of God. That's part of what it means. It means that you are, you're made to, to know by, by impulse, what it means to, to belong to God and to behave in a way that is appropriate before this God. And, and that moral law, which was written upon the hearts of image bearers, has gone on to be written uh, on, on the tablets of stone in, in the Ten Commandments. That's what our, confessions, uh, our confession of faith tells us, that the moral law given and in the garden continued to be a perfect rule of faith and life. And so, therefore, it was delivered on Mount Sinai, written in the very finger of God upon those tablets of stone. We call them the Ten Commandments. And now, as Zechariah sees this massive scroll that pronounces judgment on sinners, he knows, and we know it too if we are honest, that God is a just judge. And he is right to judge those who break his law because it comes from him. It's not something that's been made up to the fancy of any particular person. It's a divine law. And the second thing that this image teaches us Coming from that is the universal application of God's law. Note that we're told it goes out over the face of the whole land. Everybody is under God's law. Nobody can escape it. God's word applies to everyone. You can choose to listen to it or not. You can choose to regard it or not. You can choose to believe it or not. But you cannot choose to stand outside of its judgment, to stand outside of its authority. On the last day, untold millions of people will be judged according to a standard that those people outright rejected in their life. And it won't matter that they rejected it. It won't matter that they said, well, I didn't buy it. I didn't believe it. It won't matter. 
The, the, the reason that that scroll is flying overhead is, is, is just like the sun is overhead or the moon is overhead. It's over everybody. There's no part of this earth that you can escape from the light of the sun or the moon. It's overall. It's a reason, uh, incidentally, why uh, we believe that the, the, the sacrament, the accompanying sign to the Noahic covenant is a rainbow because it was a sign. It was a covenant of common grace, something God was promising to the whole world. I will not destroy all peoples in the way that I've just destroyed the world. And he doesn't want only Christians to know that he puts a sign where everybody can see it in the sky. The same thing is happening here. The law is up in the sky so that everybody knows it applies to them. They are under its authority. Nobody can escape it. And so it doesn't matter if we reject it in this life or not. In the next, we will have to give an account according to that law. As the crisis in Ukraine unfolded, there were calls for the United States to join what is known as the International uh, Criminal Court. It's located in uh, the Netherlands, and the point was that we could join in condemning the Russians and hold them accountable for their war crimes as they would be um, charged through this, this international court. But right on the website for the ICC, it states that they are only able to prosecute crimes committed by member states. And guess who isn't a member state? Of course, Russia isn't a member state. And so this international court could hold trials and they could come to a verdict that Russia is guilty of terrible war crimes. And Russia would simply say, well, we don't uh, we don't acknowledge your authority. Uh, That's fine that you have deemed that we are guilty. We don't listen to you. Uh, Even in a coalition of which Russia is a part, that is the United Nations, they have disregarded their rulings. There was a vote. 13 to 2. This was taken by the International Court of Justice. That's a subcommittee of the United Nations. By a vote of 13 to 2, this court ruled that Russia, quote, shall immediately suspend the military operations that it commenced on February 24th. They ruled that back at the beginning of March. Well, Russia does belong to the United Nations. Uh, Two months later, they have not heeded this uh, this command from this court, the ruling of this court, again, the vote was 13 to 2. The vice president of the court himself dissented, but maybe that's because he is Kirill Javorjian of Russia. What teeth does this ruling have? It didn't have any. It has been disregarded. Russia has deemed that it doesn't apply to them because they disagree with it. There's a profound limitation to human law, isn't there? A profound limitation to human governance. But just as you can imagine the the shadow of that flying scroll being cast upon Zechariah, we are all under the shadow of God's word. We cannot disregard its verdict. Our opinion on it doesn't change its authority or the weight Uh, And the power that it has. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us about this power, this authority of God's word, beginning in verse 12. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul 
and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And here it is, verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the sobering message of the first part of Zechariah's vision. You can run from God, but you can't hide. You can't hide. Even what is done in the privacy of one's own home is exposed before the Lord. Did you note that? Verse 4, I will send it out, this curse, God says, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain upon that house and consume it, both timber and stone. Even in the sanctuary of your own home, you are not safe Uh, from God's judgment upon guilty sinners. That threat would have been very familiar to Zechariah's audience because they had, um, they are those who had returned from Babylon where both Nebuchadnezzar and later Darius uh, made edicts with the same sort of warning. Uh, Ezra chapter, let me read Daniel first. This is from Nebuchadnezzar chapter 3 verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house laid in ruins. And then Darius in Ezra 6, also I make a decree that anybody alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled upon it and his house be made a dunghill. Uh, the, the Israelites, they probably saw this kind of thing play out. They saw... How serious these kings were that when people disregarded their edicts, they went to their house and they destroyed it. Now God is saying, and I will do the same thing to you. You try to run from me. You try to hide in the safety of your home. You think your home is a haven. Well, not when you're running from me. Uh, Proverbs says the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Uh, No one is safe from that searching, that seeking, a curse of God. You know the threat of this curse, brothers and sisters. You know it. We all do. Uh, You know the piercing power of the word of God. We have all experienced it, that, that feeling that we can't get away from it. It's one thing to feel convicted of sin when we're in church and, um, you know, there's somebody up here preaching God's word and talking about sin. It's, it's one thing to feel convicted of sin when we're having conversation with other believers, but we fool ourselves into thinking that there are certain places where, where we're, we're safe from that kind of conviction. Uh, maybe it's in hanging out with a, a group of friends that we deem aren't so judgmental. We can be who we really want to be. Uh, maybe it's on our phones late at night under the covers. Nobody knows what we're doing. Nobody knows what we're up to. We're safe. Maybe it's out in the woods enjoying our hobbies. Maybe it's running, exercising, playing video games, reading, whatever it might be. These things that we do that we think can distract us from what we know is true. That God is the judge of all and we have sinned terribly against him. We are guilty before that judge. God doesn't actually need preachers to tell us that. His law, his word is sufficient And again, we can reject it all we want, but we can never remove it from our hearts. To be made in the image of God means that law is written upon our hearts. And so that's why nowhere is safe. So even 
when you're hanging with that particular group of friends or in your bedroom late at night by yourself or you're listening to your music while you're running and, and you're distracting the, or you're, you're, you're silencing the world, even then, there's something you can't get away from and that's your heart. And that pang of conviction that comes from what we call the conscience. The conscience is a gracious thing and yet what often is our Response when we have that pang of conviction. Well, we just try to push it down even further. Uh, boys and girls, maybe you've done this or you've seen mom or dad do this in the kitchen because they don't want to be the one who has to take out the trash and you pull out the, the trash and you see how full it is and you've got all this junk. You should probably take the bag out and put it in the garbage can outside and put in a fresh bag. But if you're like me, you just push it down even further, right? Just push it, just get it down there. Or if you're packing your, um, your carry-on bag. You, you do not want to check a bag, and so you're taking, you know, two weeks of clothes in this tiny, you know, uh, 12-inch by 12-inch carry-on or whatever they allow you. Now you just push things down as far as you go. That's what Paul says we do. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Push it down. We try to drown our consciences out. That's what we do by nature, and yet the conscience is a gracious thing. It's there for a reason. Those moments of conviction are moments of God's grace. Because Zechariah is pointing forward to a day when sinners will be revealed and they will receive judgment for being sinners. The judgment is what the second part of the vision is about. But we're not there yet. Right now, God reveals sinners. He reveals our sins so that we wouldn't have to experience that judgment. So that we would flee to him right now, not as the judge, but as the Savior to all who call upon his name. Have you done that today? God reveals our sin with his word and spirit. He, he speaks to us in painfully convicting tones at times in our inner being through our conscience. So that on the last day we would be revealed as something more than just condemned guilty sinners. Friends, he exposes you to your sin now so that on the last day you would not be exposed before the judge. But that you would be hidden, hidden in Christ. But for unrepentant sinners, the second part of this vision guarantees that they will have no place in the blessed kingdom that God is building. They will have no place in the new Jerusalem. We look at verses 5 to the end of the chapter now. If the message of the flying banner was that sin will be revealed, the message of the flying basket is that sinners will be removed. Remember, remember I said it's not that complicated. It's quite a simple vision, actually. The flying banner said sin will be revealed, and the flying basket says sinners will be removed. Uh, so the interpreting angel, verse 5, Tells Zechariah to look up once again to the skies where now there's something else coming towards him. And it's this measuring basket. The word in Hebrew is an ephah or an ephah, uh, which was a measurement that could hold about five gallons. Now, obviously, we're going to read on that there's actually a human being inside this basket. So much like the scroll, this is probably a lot larger than a normal um, ephah. Uh, but the reference to an ephah is highlighting some probably of some of the major sins of the day. False weights and measurements, uh, defrauding in the marketplace, not bringing to God uh, the grain offerings that were his due and so forth. Nehemiah records the sin 
uh, of uh, the people upon their return as they uh, measured out and sold grain on the Sabbath, Nehemiah thirteen fifteen. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on dockings. How would they have done that? In these baskets uh, called ephahs. And also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And so, while the basket itself might represent a particular kind of sin, the fact that there is a person inside the basket underscores, friends, that sin is not an abstract concept. Sin is committed by sinners. And sinners are real people. Or we could put it like this. Sin has a face to it. The lid of the basket is open and inside there's this woman and the angel says, this is wickedness. This is wickedness. This person, this individual, sin has a face to it. Sin has consequences. And that means something very serious for sinners. And the ultimate consequence is envisioned here is that they will not be permitted to dwell with God. The, the basket that carries wickedness the woman wickedness is then carried off by, by two other women who have the wings of uh, a stork. I know this is weird, I know. Um, but likely some commentators think that uh, storks, because storks were considered ceremonially unclean, um, this is underscoring that what's in that basket is unclean. Nothing pure or holy. No angels are going to touch that. But, but these kind of, uh, these, these otherworldly creatures that represent uncleanliness come and they take that which is unclean. And where do they take it? Did you notice that? This is towards the end of the chapter. That's what Zechariah wants to know in verse 10. Where are they taking the basket? And the angel said to me, to the land of Shinar to build a house for it. Do you know where that is? Well, you do, actually. We've, we've encountered Shinar before in our, in our Bibles. The first place is in Genesis 11, where we're told that there was a valley in Shinar where a bunch of people gathered together, and they had this grand idea. Let's build a tower to the heavens and make ourselves God. Let's topple the heavenly throne and let's make ourselves God. The Tower of Babel was erected in the valley of Shinar. And then we come across it a second time. Uh, later on in scripture when we're told that this is where the kingdom of Babylon has been uh, built. That's where Zechariah's people had just returned from was Babylon. So the message in the vision is that if people do not return to God in their hearts with true, sincere repentance, then God will return them right back to where he just brought them from, back to exile, back out of the covenant community, back to curse. This is wickedness. This is where sinners go. Where, Zechariah wants to know, to the land of Shinar, outside of the promised land, not in my kingdom. To, to Babel, to Babylon, to this, this outpost, this place that is known for being evil. The vision teaches us, though, about the nature of God's kingdom, that it must be holy and it must be pure. Rick Phillips, in his commentary, says, God will not dwell with sin. One or the other must depart. 
And so if we are to be God's people, then we, like him, must be radically committed to the removal of sin and the pursuit of holiness. And this is what we pursue now, for this is the reality of where we are headed, according to Revelation 21, 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Does that sound familiar? Zechariah, chapter 5, people who swear falsely. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter there. So sinners will be removed from God's presence totally and eternally on that last day of of judgment. They will be desperate to escape their fate. The Bible gives us a window into what condemned sinners are thinking. Um, uh, Coming to mind is is that that story of... of, um, uh, the the uh, rich man, and uh, he's in hell, and Lazarus uh, goes to him, and, and he's pleading, this rich man, uh, that, that he could be somehow rescued. And the answer, of course, is no, there has been this chasm, this gulf between uh, the kingdom of, of God, the new heavens and the new earth, and the land of Shinar, Sheol, hell. Nobody can cross over. People are desperate, though, to get from there back into God's good graces. But just like the woman in this vision, the basket, the lid is shut back down over top of her. She must, she must endure her fate. Unable to escape judgment, sinners will be sent to the seat of evil. Uh, Revelation often calls it Babylon. Zechariah calls it Shinar. We know it by the name Hell. By God's grace, sin has not yet been entirely removed from God's people or God's kingdom. I'll say that one more time and then explain. By God's grace, sin has not yet been entirely removed from God's people or God's kingdom. How can I say that's a gracious thing? Don't we want an end to sin? Don't we want an end to suffering and and sadness? Don't we want an end to people swearing falsely and and cheating us and and all the rest? Of course we long for the end of sin. But as long as judgment is held off until tomorrow, then that means, dear sinner, there is still time for you to repent and for you to know the salvation of That is offered freely in Jesus Christ. He's the answer to the problem that this prophecy proposes. Did you sense the the problem? The problem is that this flying banner has exposed us all as guilty of breaking God's commandments. And then the vision goes on to say, for those who have broken God's commandments, they're banished from God's place. From his people, from his kingdom. That's a problem, isn't it? Because that's all of us. The law condemns all of us. And then we're told that for those who have broken the law, they get whisked away to Babylon. Back to exile. That's a problem. What do we do about this? There is a banner called God's law that waves over every creature, condemning us all. For our countless sins against God's majesty, how can we keep from being 
banished on account of our sin? And the answer is Christ. He is the solution. He is the one who is held between earth and heaven, as Zechariah 5.9 says. They lifted up that basket between earth and heaven, just as Christ was lifted up on a cross between earth and heaven, suspended there as, as one who didn't belong, who was being carried off to a land of condemnation. And yet, the wonderful thing is that as he's hanging there, suspended in, in the air, it's as though he reaches out his hand and he grabs that flying scroll. Yes, that one that condemns even you and me tonight. And he holds on to it. And he nails it to the cross. That's what Colossians tells us. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so do you see it? That that flying banner, Christ reaching out and taking hold of it, and removing that, that shadow of gloom from over you as he brings it to himself. And as he says, as it were, to his father, all of the curses that are contained in this scroll pour out on me. And that's how you and I aren't banished. That's how you and I, sinners though we are, get into heaven. In doing so, in dying in our place, in becoming a curse for us, he has taken that banner of law that was over us, and he's transformed it so that we can say, as the church has said throughout the millennia, his banner over me is love. I want to be very clear tonight and remind you once more that there is only one of two options. You can live life under the deathly shadow of that flying banner of God's condemning law, guilty before its demands with no hope in the next life. Uh, not only do you have no hope, you have the guarantee, the certainty that you will be banished entirely from God's blessed presence. Or, and this is the preferable option. You can spend eternity in that kingdom under the refreshing shade of his banner of gospel and love. Father, your word, as we have heard from Hebrews, is living and active. We feel at times its convicting power, and by your spirit, even at times when when we don't even have our Bibles open and we're in the privacy of our own homes, we feel our conscience telling us that we have sinned against you, against neighbor. And this is a gracious thing uh, because it is a reminder that we must repent and it's, you're prodding us to do just that, to come to Christ while today is still called today. We are, are humbled by your gospel 
We have been sobered by Zechariah's vision and the reality that it guarantees for unrepentant sinners of banishment from your presence. But, of course, we cling to gospel hope, which tells us that that banner of law has been nailed to the cross of Christ. Our sin, not in part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. And so we do praise you, O Lord, with all our souls. Amen.